Father, we, we pray like Daniel did where he saw the sense of hopelessness around and he prayed for restoration, not because of any righteous deeds that we have done, but entirely for your name's sake and because we bear your name. And so we pray, come and magnify yourself in our lives and come and speak to us and revive our hearts because we bear your name and we want your name to be glorified in us. So we ask that you would glorify yourself in us by giving us hearts of adoration towards you. Please do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at the context here in chapter 2. There's a very, very heated situation, particularly this section in verses 11 to 14. So we will look at the context and then we will look at what the issue is and then we will look at what the misunderstandings were that created the issue and then the solution. So kind of the context, the issue, the misunderstandings, and then the solution to the problem. The context here, uh, overall, the Galatian churches are struggling with their understanding of the gospels. The gospel has been received by them when Paul went through, you know, very early on in his first missionary journey, they received the gospel with zeal. There was opposition, but there was a lot of fruit uh, as Paul was proclaiming that it is by faith in Christ that people are made right with God. And then not long after this, there were these Judaizers, which remember Judaizers are these people that were following the Messiah, Jesus, but they wanted to make people live like Jews. So to Judaize is to kind of make someone live like a Jew. And you have these people who kind of say, yeah, you can follow Christ, but you have to make sure you keep the Jewish customs. You have to make sure you live like a Jew because that's, that's the superior culture. That's, that's the way God's people are supposed to live. So you have to keep the purification laws. You have to be circumcised. Don't eat with Gentiles. And all of a sudden, these new Christians are turning away from the grace of God because they are adding to the gift of God's grace by attempting to keep right with God by following Jesus, but then observing Torah, so absorbing, observing the Mosaic law, this sort of cultural customs and saying that is how we are really right with God, Jesus plus. And Paul is flabbergasted that these people would turn away from the gift of God's salvation to struggle their way up an impossible path. And so this is why he goes on from chapter one, defending the gospel that he originally proclaimed to them. So we saw that he defended the gospel firstly by saying that it is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive news. So there's no other news in all of the world that can claim how people are right with God. So the gospel is exclusive and therefore it makes all other pieces of news that would try and say how one is right with God, it makes them fake news. It makes them a lie. And then he defends the source of the gospel, which we went over last week. That The source is divine revelation. The source is directly from God. And Paul says, you can't explain my transformed identity or my transformed life apart from the fact that God himself had done something incredible. More than that, the message which I proclaimed has to be divinely revealed. It couldn't have been made up by men because I started proclaiming this very same gospel without consulting in any way with the original apostles who were proclaiming the exact same message. 
And from verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul continues his defense. So today, well, previously we had the exclusivity of the gospel. Then we had the source of the gospel. Today is the core of the gospel. The core here, Paul is, is defending the gospel by giving an example from another time in another place. So in this section here in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2, this is referring to another situation in the Antioch church, which was the missionary launching pad. And something went wrong in that church that has the exact same root problem of the issue that is going wrong, wrong in the Galatian churches. So Paul is kind of here. He's like talking to the Galatian churches, kind of like if you have had a friend who's about to do something stupid and you say to them, let me tell you about this time when someone else did that very same thing and it ended up terribly for them. Let me give you an example of this to try and talk you out of making the exact same problem. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's like, let me tell you about this time in Antioch when things went horribly wrong and I had to confront the leader of the church at that time, Peter, one of the leaders, uh, so that you Galatians would not make the same mistake. That's what Paul is doing here. So this is the context. Paul is defending the truth of the gospel to the Galatian churches because Judaizers have come in and they've perverted it. And he's now using this example from the Antioch church to say when that mistake happened, it ended up terribly for them. So here's why you must not do that. So he's addressing the very same corruption in Antioch that is happening in the Galatian churches. That's the context. What is the issue? The issue we find in verse 14. Paul here says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This is the main issue. Not in step with the truth of the gospel. The issue here is the behavior of the leading people in this Antioch church, so Peter had come along, but there were also leaders there and their behavior was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It was not consistent with the truth of the gospel. So they were not walking straight. That's literally the word here for, um, for their conduct not being in step. It's a word that takes ortho, like if you go to an orthodontist, they hopefully make your teeth straight, your dentist straight. Uh, this here is ortho, Podeo, and then the word for walking. So this is like Paul saying they're not walking in a straight line consistent with the gospel. They're, they're veering off and it's very dangerous. And this is because their behavior did not follow the truth of the gospel. So our behavior matters. Our actions matter. It's clearly not simply enough for us to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm following the gospel. Our behavior matters. Now, what is the behavior Paul is talking about? As we look at verses 11 to 14, we read how Paul confronts Peter, so that's Cephas, Cephas is, is Peter, and he confronts Peter because for Peter, even though Peter knew the truth of the gospel, which was that Jew and Gentile, so remember that Gentiles were basically everyone who was not a Jew, so the truth of the gospel was that God had made Jew and Gentile, one body together. And Peter knew that, but 
Peter began drawing back and separating himself from Gentiles. And this is because under the Old Testament laws, Gentiles were deemed unclean. So if a Jew ate with a Gentile, if they entered their house, it would mean that that Jew would be pronounced ceremonially unclean. They would be unable to worship in the community of Israel for a period of time. They would be cast out. But the thing is, Christ had removed these requirements by fulfilling the law. Christ had removed this. So in Christ, he creates one new people, Jew and Gentile, together. But these Judaizers were saying that even though God's Messiah is Jesus, yes, he is the chosen one, you still have to follow the Jewish customs. You still have to stay away from Gentiles at the table and some of these other customs. And what this meant was that under this banner of the renewed people called Christians, this brand new sect of Judaism under this banner where everyone had come together, you started to have distinctions. You started to have the Jewish observant Christians distinguishing themselves from the Gentile Christians, from Greeks and other God-fearing people. And so you had two parties separated from each other in the church and this behavior is totally inconsistent with the gospel because the gospel has created one new restored people from Jew and Gentile. So all of these cultural and ethnic barriers that they had, though still somewhat important, they are not important to create separation. So these cultural and ethnic customs that they had actually mean nothing anymore because they all come together under one body. That's why Paul later on in chapter three will say, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. We all come together as one. And the result of this behavior was that it divided people in one of their most intimate times. So look at uh, Paul's issue with Peter. He's saying that Peter, he drew back and separated himself because he used to eat with the Gentiles. And this, the, the language here describes an ongoing process. Peter was in an ongoing process of consistently eating with the Gentiles. There was one body there and table fellowship back in those times was an extremely intimate time. Meals around the table were a place of deep intimacy. Not only that, but it was likely where they celebrated the Lord's Supper. It was a place of where you're celebrating the Lord's Supper, which is that there is one body broken for many to then become one body following Christ. And they were doing it in two separate parties. They were doing it with these Jewish observant Christians and then the Gentile Christians. So this kind of behavior, this separation, it tears apart the gospel of Christ. The behavior here causing the issue brought a separation to something which God had brought together. And not only this, but their behavior compelled Christians to something which they ought not have been compelled to. So if you look at verse 14, Paul's issue is he says, um, if you, Peter, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you compel them to live like Jews? So not only was there a separation, but there was this compelling for Gentiles to live with mandated Jewish customs that were no longer mandated under the gospel. People were being forced into this. So under the renewed and restored people of God, which again, 
consists of both Jew and Gentile. There are some things which ethnically Jewish Christians can still follow. So even as a Christian, ethnically Jewish Christians could still follow these cultural customs so long as they are simply done as a cultural custom um, done to worship the Lord, sort of under the banner of doing all things for the glory of God. So, for example, uh, a ethnically Jewish Christian uh, might still not eat particular meats. They might stick with a kosher diet because that's just the culture they grew up in and they are doing it, realizing that it means nothing for them and their right standing with God, but they're doing it because it's a way they can worship God by just eating a particular diet, just like we do particular diets now. The issue is the moment that that person then says it is essential for Christians to eat a kosher diet, that is where the problem comes in. When you start taking a cultural custom and placing it on the level of divine doctrine, that is the issue. When you start mandating that people have to actually do this to be a Christian, then that's not okay for our context. So we have similar um, cultural customs that we do. If we take um, our, our corporate gathering of worship, which, which obviously is our whole gathering together, and if we take then singing out of our corporate worship, in uh, many African churches, the cultural custom for singing is to dance around as you are singing. And that would probably go on for hours and hours. This happens in a lot of churches in uh, like Papua New Guinea as well and those sort of areas. And it goes on for just um, ages. It's, it's very celebratory. And that's just the way that they express their worship of God. Here in a Western context, we I mean, pretty much stay as still as possible. And like, maybe you would be so bold as to raise a hand slightly, but it's kind of like stiff. And that's just the way that we kind of express our devotion. Uh, you have the element of worship, which is singing. And then you have the cultural form. So you have the element that's singing. And then you have the way that that is expressed, the cultural form in which that is expressed. So we can never go to a Nigerian church and say, how dare you be so rude and obnoxious dancing around when you're singing. And, you know, likewise, they should not look at us who were there like a statue and kind of say, are you not worshipping the Lord? That's a cultural form and we must not bring it to the level of a, a mandated uh, custom of how one is actually right with God. So we begin walking out of step with the gospel, like what has happened here when we start compelling people, forcing people to actually uh, worship in a particular way that is just not mandated under the gospel. That's what's happening here. These people are elevating preferences and customs which they think are necessary to keep in order to truly be pure and clean before God. And this kind of compulsion was not in step with the gospel because it completely corrupted the gospel truth, which says that the only way to actually be pure and clean before God is by the blood of Christ and nothing else. That's how we are pure and clean, by the sacrifice of Jesus. Just as a bit of a side point, notice why Paul says that Peter's conduct was not in step with the gospel. He doesn't say that Peter forgot. I mean, Peter, if you remember from Acts 10 and 11, Peter had this incredible vision where God basically clearly said to him, everything is clean, Peter. So everything 
that I pronounce as clean is clean. And what he was saying was Gentiles are clean so long as they are trusting in the gift of my son. And Peter had this incredible experience where he went to Cornelius then and baptized the house. And he said, oh, wow, I'm convinced now God has made the Gentiles clean. They're just like us. They've received the Holy Spirit just like us. But Paul says here, that wasn't why, it wasn't like Peter forgot that. He says, Peter feared the circumcision party. Remember how Paul said that he's not a people pleaser. Paul was like, I'm not a people pleaser. I'm not here to please people. The moment I start pleasing people, I stop being a servant of Christ. Peter slipped back into the fear of man. He slipped back into the perilous nature of people pleasing and that led him astray from the gospel. And this is scary for us because we may know something is right or wrong. But the moment we begin fearing man, the moment we begin feeling the pressure from either culture or someone else to stray, it almost becomes irrelevant what we objectively know to be right or wrong. We just fear people and immediately, like Peter, we are led astray. So it's a great warning for us. This is the issue. Behaviors which not only are not compatible with the teaching of the gospel, but they actually corrupt and distort the one true gospel. So we've had the, the context and then the issue is that their behavior is not in step with the gospel and the behavior is showing that they are actually misunderstanding the gospel. They're creating division and separation. Now let's look at what exactly went wrong from Paul's perspective here in the Antioch church to then help the Galatian churches and to help us. There are three particular things which went wrong here. Firstly, there is a misunderstanding of how one is right with God. So from verse 15, Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we are justified. That is, we are declared righteous. We are declared by the God who created everything, declared right, perfectly right in his eyes, by nothing other than the faith in Jesus Christ. In faith in Christ, receiving the gift of God's grace. That is how we are declared righteous. The works of the law here that Paul mentions are these purification laws, these sort of cultural customs that were part of um, Old Testament Israel's worship community, but under the new covenant had been um, uh, done away with as far as how people are made right with God, uh, which was pointing to the way that people were always made right with God, which was by faith in his promised Messiah. And so this is why uh, Jewish people, as I've said, these works of the law, this is why Jewish people couldn't then eat with Gentiles. And so they were slipping back into the, this sort of misunderstanding of the law, like Jews staying apart from Gentiles because they thought that was what kept them pure and clean before God. But these people misunderstood what happened when Christ came to fulfill the law. So the bigger picture of these purification laws was always to demonstrate 
that all of humanity has an unclean issue. And that is the issue of our hearts before God. This is what the purification laws were always pointing to. So to give an example, you don't have to turn there in your Bibles, but in Leviticus 14, probably not a well-known passage for for most people, but in Leviticus 14, you have um, the requirements of what to do when a leper is in the community and the leper would be pronounced unclean. And the way that a leper would then be made clean to come back into the worshiping community was that they would take two birds. Now, I'm very thankful that we're not under the old covenant anymore, but uh, they would take two birds, they would slaughter one, uh, they would dip the blood into a basin, and then they would take the other, the second live bird, and they would dip the bird into the blood and then set that bird free. And it was a purification ceremony to then pronounce the leper clean again. So you see, death, so a sacrifice, blood spilled out, a, uh, the, the life being washed in the blood and then set free, which was, of course, a picture of Christ's sacrifice, his blood shed, us being covered by his blood to then be set free. This is what the, and there's many, many of these laws that point to the fact that that is how we would actually all be made right with God, not by the slaughter of a bird, but by the slaughter of a a lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. These laws were always pointing to the primary way in which God would purify his people. This is how we are made clean. This is how we are justified. So to turn back, to religious customs of purification like these people are doing after God had already shown, he had shown how people are truly made clean in Christ. It would be like having kind of like if you're about to go on a journey and you have a map, you're studying the map of the journey. Um, Let's say you're traveling through countryside Scotland, a beautiful area, and you have the map. And then finally, you've got your car and you're about to head off. And then you kind of say, you know what, hang on. Uh, let's, let's do it properly. Let's go on our journey. Come stand on the map and we'll sort of walk along the map instead of seeing all the beautiful countryside. And this is what it would be like for these people. The, the, the map was pointing to the reality of the exploration you were about to have. But if you turn back to, map, how, to the map, how ridiculous. Likewise, The sacrificial system was pointing to the true reality of how we would be made clean. So then to turn back, to turn back to the old customs is ridiculous. They misunderstood how people were made right with God. The second issue is hypocritical behavior. So verse 13, if we come back into this section here, um, Paul says, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, Barnabas, a very faithful man, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy was the issue. Peter knew that God had removed the Jewish Gentile barrier. He knew. And this is why Paul says that he and the others were acting hypocritically because they knew the truth of the gospel, yet they acted in a way that was inconsistent with that. See, someone might know true true doctrine, the true teachings of the Bible, yet their actions and behavior is inconsistent with that. And that is what we call a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite if you know the truth, yet you do not act in that way. That is a hypocrite. 
So if you claim to know Jesus, yet you consistently act in an unloving way toward others, you're a hypocrite. And this is what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says, whoever says, I know him, whoever says, yes, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John is very boldly saying, hey, if you say you know Jesus, but you don't walk in obedience to him, you don't actually know him. You're a hypocrite. You're just a liar. You don't know him. And hypocrisy is so often tied to people-pleasing. Man, people-pleasing is dangerous. Peter feared the circumcision party and then was led into hypocritical behavior. It didn't even matter what he knew. He, he just became a hypocrite because he wanted to please people. He was led astray. And as an example of our own hypocrisy today, we become hypocrites when we claim to know the truth of all life and existence, yet we don't talk to people about it. We become a bit hypocritical in that. Um, I don't know if you guys ever watched the the two magicians, Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette is like a very famous guy. He's very tall. You'd probably know him if you saw him. And he is a devout atheist and just um, like a very hardcore atheist. And he interestingly um, says that he has no respect for Christians who do not proselytize. So he has no respect for Christians who do not try and tell people the way of salvation because he says, I don't believe, I know enough about the Bible to know that they believe that I'm going to hell if I don't trust in Jesus. And after a show, and like he is very open about his disdain for Christianity, and after a show, someone uh, came and gave him a Bible and said, I'd love for you to read this Bible. And uh, Penn then wrote an article about it and said, that guy has my respect. He believes in this and he, his actions were consistent with his beliefs. He cared enough to tell me uh, that I am going to hell if I do not believe in the Son of God. And he said, uh, he has my respect. Whereas someone who believes this but never tells me is like a, a bus is coming to hit me and they're just going to let that bus hit me. For us, we must not be led astray by hypocrisy. We must walk in step with the truth of the gospel and therefore proclaim to others in gracious and loving ways, in an overflow of love, the way that people are made right with the God in heaven, uh, God of heaven and earth, which is through Jesus. And that is how we rid ourselves of hypocritical behavior when it comes to testifying of uh, the way of salvation. The third issue is that they rebuilt barriers which the gospel had broken down. So the gospel breaks down all cultural and ethnic barriers. And one of the most significant barriers is of course, Jew and Gentile. This is like God had set apart his people Israel. And there are laws under the Old Testament around how they are not to be near Gentiles, near the nations. There was a great barrier and the gospel is so incredibly radical because it announced that there was no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. All ethnicities and cultural backgrounds are just leveled out and all can come into this renewed family of God by trusting in Jesus. So if you look at verses 17 to 19, this is what Paul is saying here when he says, 
If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So he's saying, if justification by faith, if this doctrine that I've been telling you about has brought Jew and Gentile together, does that make Christ a servant of sin? Because I thought Christ was God and God seemed to have always been in the business of separating Jew and Gentile. And so Paul here is saying, is that what you're thinking? If in justification by faith, uh, are we um, rebuilding uh, or are we rather participating in sin because uh, we are breaking down these barriers? And Paul is saying, no way. That's not the case. He's actually saying if we rebuild these barriers, if we put these barriers back, these cultural and ethnic barriers, then we are participating in sin. Christ came to do away with that. So that's what he says. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If we rebuild what God has torn down, then we transgress his commands. God had showed that this was the mystery, that Jew and Gentile would come together, all would be one. So Paul says, I died. I died to those barriers which Christ has broken down. They're not here anymore. And though we don't have the exact same ethnic barriers in our society, we do still have cultural barriers. We here have class barriers. We have the upper and lower class, rich and poor. We do still have these barriers. We have personality barriers, introverts and extroverts, people who like large social gatherings or people like me who much prefer smaller intimate one-on-one where I can actually talk to people and you have different personalities and no one should ever uh, only hang out with people that are like-minded. We have taste barriers. So people, some people like traditional music, others like contemporary, and that can certain, certainly play out in the church where one might prefer uh, classic hymns or one might prefer sort of the new age contemporary stuff. And all of these, all of these things, they become totally irrelevant to our communion with each other and with Christ by the gospel of Christ. Because the gospel says that the only thing that is important in terms of our entire purpose in life and gathering together as God's people is whether we have trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we might receive the gift of salvation. That is all that is important. If you want unity, that's it. Trust in Jesus. So if we have that, then every other preference, every other taste, every other social barrier is irrelevant in our common allegiance to Jesus Christ. So for the Jewish people here, back into the Antioch church and what's happening in Galatia, for them to suddenly raise up that barrier again by saying, no, 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 if the people who want to be Jewish observant should eat at this table and the other people should eat at that table, that is rebuilding barriers that God had torn down and therefore it is spitting in the face of the gospel. And this is why in the church, and I've been very open about this, we must never have cliques, like we must never have different groups of people creating sort of cultural kingdoms which have a barrier around them. So one way that we can walk rightly in step with the gospel is by actually intentionally hanging out with people who we would would not usually hang out with. 
like actually in, in including other people that we wouldn't usually hang out with. And we do have a, a wonderful opportunity for that in our community now because we are actually so very small. And so it's easy to set this. The problem is when churches get to sort of 50 to 100 people, if there's little sort of cultural kingdoms in there, it's very difficult to break down when it's already happened. And we do have a wonderful opportunity now to actually live in step with the gospel and, and uh, invite all in and have, I mean, the church is the place where natural enemies become friends. Like I've used the example before of on the schoolyard and you look on the schoolyard and you see a lot of people having fun, but it's always like the footy kids hanging out with the footy kids and the geeks doing geeky things and you sort of segregate people and they all get along, but they get along by staying out of each other's way. And that's not what happens in the church. The church is where natural enemies come together and form a common bond. This is also why the concept of intersectionality, if you've come across that before, um, is just so very unhelpful. Like things like uh, identifying yourself as, say, a black Christian or as a, a white Christian. It's just a terrible thing because you begin creating barriers that the blood of Christ has, has washed over. So these are the misunderstandings which has created the behavior that was not in step with the gospel. Now, finally, what is the solution? We, of course, have to come back to the core. Now, we've clearly heard the core of the gospel is that we are freely justified, freely justified, declared righteous by the grace of God as we trust in Christ. And so therefore, there can be no superiority or separation in the body of Christ because the gospel levels us out to say that we all fall short of the glory of God. We all can do nothing to be right with God. By his mercy, we are brought in. So there's never a place for superiority in the body. But what I, I want to do to finish is highlight one of the extremely significant aspects of justification. So in verse 20, a very famous verse, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Often in our recovering of reformed doctrine of what people call the doctrines of grace um, and what happened in the Reformation of kind of recovering this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith alone. Often in that we can uh, neglect, not intentionally, but we can neglect uh, the love of Christ that is underpinning this doctrine. We are justified because God's overwhelming love overflowed to us. That's why we are justified, because God's overwhelming love overflowed to us. That's what Paul says here. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what underpins the doctrine of justification, because the Son of God loved you and gave himself for you. If we understand that we are justified freely by his grace alone, then it makes his love even more astonishing because it, mean, it means that he loved us when we had nothing lovable within us. That's what the doctrine of justification by faith tells us. 
We can do nothing to be right with God. We are enemies. We have nothing lovable within us, yet he loves us. Yet he pours out his love upon us and shows it in giving up himself for us. So how does this solve the issue of barriers and separation which distort the gospel? How does this actually solve the issue? Because the love of Christ seen in the gospel empowers and compels us to follow the same sacrificial, self-giving pattern we see in the work of Christ. Paul says, because of this love, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live anymore. I count my life to be worth nothing, of no value, lest I continue following Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul says, it's no longer my desires that remain central. I leave them at the door, never to be seen again. It's no longer my desires, my preferences that are front and center. It is the glory of God because Christ has given himself for me. Therefore, I do all things for the sake of others. The Christian life of sacrificial love done for the good of others can only come when it is modeled off of the love of Christ that we see in the gospel where Christ gives himself of love. So to highlight this even more, 1 John 3.16. John says, by this we know love. This is how we know love. That he, Christ, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's what he's saying. If we have this modeled for us, Christ, the Son of God, giving up his life for us in love, we therefore ought to follow that same pattern as we meditate upon the love that is seen in the innocent Savior of the world, perfect, blameless Savior who did nothing wrong, we who did everything wrong, completely reversed so that he takes our punishment upon himself, we receive his righteousness as we meditate upon that as we behold that, then it is that very same love that is seen on the cross that then floods our hearts and overflows within us so that we can then reciprocate that same love toward others. We lay down our personal preferences for the good of others, thus staying in step with the pattern of love we see where Christ laid down and said, not my will, but your will. We follow that same pattern. And this is the best possible antidote. The best possible antidote for unhealthy cliques, superiority, or any form of division in the church. Because when you are fixated with this kind of love, then there is nothing that will ever be so significant in anyone else that is going to stop you or prevent you from coming together and seeking the Lord. The, the, the love of Christ present in the community of God's people is immeasurably stronger, immeasurably stronger than the most significant personal or cultural differences in us. And we have a lot of them. But the love of Christ is immeasurably stronger. I was reading an article just through the week of two World War II soldiers from the US and one was from... Uh, New York, who was a trained lawyer and was a professor, but then went off to fight in World War II. And he uh, became really good friends with this Southern 
Louisiana um, soldier who had a fifth grade education at most, knew a lot about farming. And these people, these soldiers bonded over potatoes. They became uh, great friends. In fact, one of them saved the other's life. Uh, they just had a common bond over potatoes. Imagine what a common bond over the love of Christ can do for a people. These soldiers are willing to lay down their life. Obviously, there was a part of being a soldier, but really they just form this wonderful bond. Imagine what the love of Christ can do in a community where people like you and me every day make the daily decision to lay aside our preferences, to take up our cross and follow Jesus, to commit to following him and therefore to commit to the body of God's people. Imagine what can happen. Let's pray and then... Um, we will take the Lord's Supper together. Father, please come and make this love known to us more and more. And you, you have shown it to us very clearly, but we are weak and we need reminders. So we ask by your spirit right now that you would make this love very present to us. This love which underpins the, the wonderful doctrine of justification by faith alone, that we are declared righteous and so now it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us and the life we now live in the flesh. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We have been purchased. We are no longer ours. What a relief that is. Come and saturate our hearts with that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.